Welcome back to The Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with my friend, Vasant Dar, who is the editor of a journal of which I'm a part of the editorial board called The Big Data Journal, and also teaches at NYU. Welcome to The Data Show, Vasant. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's start off by talking a little bit about your background. Um, at the risk of dating myself, and I think listeners of this show have heard this many times, but when I decided to leave academia, there was no such thing as data science. The exit strategy back in the day was becoming a quant in finance. And I think Vasant shares a little bit of that background. So talk about, uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, and I, I, from what I gather, you are, have you mostly been in industry and now have just gone back to teaching? No, no. Actually, I've been uh, mostly in academia, okay. but I've uh, uh, had a few uh, stints in industry, and I also founded um, uh, an investment program that is actually run professionally and has investors in it. It's run by a, a bunch of uh, professionals, but I was the founder of this uh, investment program. Uh, but I've spent most of my time in academia, and I continue to uh, be a full-time academic as well. So you uh, you came of age, I guess, probably around the time then when there was no data science yet, right? No, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I actually cut my teeth in the early days of uh, artificial intelligence. I was fortunate uh, to have some great mentors, uh, Herbert Simon and, and Harry Popel. Herb Simon, of course, is, is well known to everyone in AI. Uh, Harry Popel was, you know, one of the pioneers in... Um, the area of AI and medicine. He uh, built the first medical uh, diagnosis system that considered the entire field of internal medicine. It was called Internist, and then a subsequent version of that was called Caduceus. So that was sort of the heyday of expert systems when I grew up. So what were the application domains at that point? Well, you know, at that point, the application domains were primarily medicine, engineering, there were very few business applications. So that was one of the things that really intrigued me about artificial intelligence, because I felt that there should be business applications because, you know, there were areas like risk and tax laws and things like that, where I felt that, you know, there was enough human expertise. But even sort of beyond that, I felt that business was a domain where there was lots of data available, perhaps even more data than expertise, formalized expertise. So I always felt that there was some potential there. And uh, that was also sort of the early, early days of machine learning. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was going to get to that. So um, two things that you uh, talked about that were interesting. One, your use of the term expert systems and AI. And I'm trying to recall, actually, Vasant, I remember actually maybe in the 90s, the term data mining was a lot more fashionable than machine learning, right? That, That's correct. In fact, uh, and, no, and then what is it? Knowledge systems and data mining. That, that's right. Yeah, all those terms were much more popular at that time. And in fact, in it was in 1991 that I uh, started writing my book on uh, data mining and, and business intelligence. It took a lot longer than I anticipated to write it. Uh, and uh, that's also when I uh, met someone who was actually working at Morgan Stanley, who read the first couple of chapters of my book. And, you know, I was 
expressing this concept at that time of something called intelligence density. And, and I felt that, you know, if you had raw data, it was very hard to get value from it. But if you somehow sort of managed to summarize the essence of it so that people could get value from it quickly, then it was sort of denser from an intelligence uh, standpoint. And I began to sort of tie that into uh, machine learning. And before I even went into finance, I did a project with Nielsen, the, the media company. They'd given me a whole bunch of data about households and what they bought and said, you know, just see if you can find anything interesting. And there weren't really any tools around at that time. You had to sort of roll your own. And I had been developing some algorithms, specifically a genetic rule learner. And I want, I was really keen to test it out. So I cranked it on this data set and it came out with a whole bunch of patterns. And uh, I had my meeting with them and they said, so Vasant, what'd you find? I said, you know, I found a whole bunch of things, but I can't explain it. And they said, all right, you know, why don't you go down the list? And I said, well, here's the first one. You know, women over 40 in the Northeast do a lot of shopping on Thursdays. Oh, right, 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 right. You know, and... So all uh, these correlations... Well, you know, but, and he said, oh, yeah, that's coupon day. And I was really thrilled because it was, you know, there was like a rational explanation for it. And, you know, the computer had actually found a pattern in the data that I hadn't explicitly told it to look for. Uh, so this was so this was probably still called data mining at that point. That's right. That's right. I mean, at that time, it was called data mining. And, uh, you know, I just sort of, like I said, I started working on my book and, uh I just so happened to uh, run across someone at Morgan Stanley who was the chief of technology, who'd also been a very successful trader. And he read the first couple of my uh, book chapters and said, hey, this is really relevant. And he dragged me into Morgan Stanley and said, uh, you know, there's so many problems here to chew on and I'd really like you to get cranking. And I, and, um, I said, well, you know, what should we work on? And he said, well, you know, trading and, and investment is, you know, something I'm really keen on, but we have a slew of customer data, trades data. So maybe you can actually help us analyze this better and, and help us manage our relationships better. You know, that's, and, pretty, that's pretty funny because uh, as a professor in NYU, you would think that you would have got to Wall Street sooner. <laughs> you, would, you would think, you would think. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it just takes the right connection and, and this is what it was. And, you know, I, I joke with people, I say, you know, when I first started looking at finance, the only thing I knew is that prices go up and down. Right, and, right. you know, so it was only when I actually went to Morgan Stanley and took time off from academia that I learned about finance and financial markets. And I had a very similar sort of experience to the Nielsen one when I first joined Morgan Stanley because uh, Kevin Parker, who was the guy who brought me in, ran a prop trading group. And like many prop trading groups, uh, they want to know everything you know, but they don't want to tell you anything they know. Right. So I proposed uh, an experiment. That's I said, funny you know, how that works that way with the traders. So. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, so I proposed an experiment to them. I said, you know, why don't you give me all your trades that you've done over the last uh, five years or so, and I'll tell you if you could have done better. And they said, well, we don't need to tell you the basis for these trades. I said, no, just give me the trades. So they did, and I went off, and I you know, cranked my algorithms on them. And, you know, we used to have a weekly meeting and, you know, next week, uh, you know, Kevin turns to me and says, oh, son, did you find anything? And I said, yeah, I did, but I have no idea what this means. And he said, well, okay, let's go down the list. And I said, well, you know, when the 30-day volatility is in the lowest quartile, your trades tend to be three times as profitable as they are otherwise. Um, oh, so you were just back, you were just back testing their trading well, systems or, or coming up with your own? 
Well, so what I really did in that initial experiment is I just took the uh, I took all the trades, I appended them with sort of you know information about the state of the market at the time. I see. Uh, you know, and then I cranked it through you know a genetic algorithm and a tree induction algorithm, and and you know lo and behold, you know this is the type of stuff it it, it spat out at me. And when I took it to the meeting, it generated a lot of really interesting discussion because you know one of the you know one of my mantras always is that you know patterns emerge before reasons for them become apparent, and that was my you know that was sort of my second experience with that sort of uh, mantra that. You know, it was like, wow, why, why is this the case? And of course, it took several months before we actually finally found the reasons for why I was observing what I was observing. And Sometimes maybe the patterns are just spurious correlations, right? Indeed, indeed. And, uh, you know, which is, which is the other side of the coin. Uh, sometimes you find something and, you know, it's just a spurious correlation. And, and that's actually a very challenging part of being, you know, a data scientist now, a data miner in those days. Yeah. Uh, you know, as to like, what do you really drill down further into and what do you really regard as kind of just spurious? You know, uh, I, I, I spent actually three years as the lead quant for a hedge fund. And uh, that this was back in the day, Fazant, when uh, primarily you were trading off of price data, right? And now, nowadays, of course, there are so many other signals that people are using. But uh, because the price data was so over-examined and over-mined in many ways, it was actually I found it actually quite difficult to find uh, patterns that you can consistently exploit because you know, the, the markets are so efficient, the, the patterns yes, disappear. Right? Yes, and 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 you're getting at and you're getting at something really really interesting, um, and that is that financial markets are really really noisy. I mean, they are about as close to random as you get, but not quite random. Um, and and so finding sort of uh, actionable patterns in financial markets is a really really tough challenge, regardless of what data you use. That you right? can consistently exploit, right? Exactly. And 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 what you're looking for is a, you know you're really looking for that edge because you know that you're often going to be wrong, right. and that's just part of life. You know you you know you're often going to be wrong, and sometimes you're wrong sort of consecutively. You know in sequence. Right. right. Uh, and you know and you head into what we call a drawdown. And so, and, and, and frankly, you—I mean, uh, with all the data you have, you don't really have that much historical data. So, probability, you your probability distribution that you're basing it off of might have completely changed, right? That's right. I mean, you—you you never have enough data. The distributions are not entirely stable, you know. And yet, you know, you've got to decide which way you're going to take a position. So these systems have to be calibrated very, very carefully. I mean, I tell people, you know, don't try this at home. And, you know, I teach a class on trading strategies where I ask people, you know, who've traded. I say, how do you do? And, and you know, almost without exception, people say, you know, well, I, I, didn't, I don't do too well. Right, <laughs> and, right. I, and, and, you know, one of the lessons from this is that, you know, if you think that you're smarter than most people as a human being and you'll consistently make better decisions... You know, you might get lucky, but chances are that you'll be disappointed. So, uh, so there's also, you know, I mean, uh, people who are not in finance but uh, are interested in machine learning. There's this adage, right, that the features matter more than algorithms. So, I, so in many ways, I think uh, Wall Street and finance have embraced this mantra in in their quest for finding signals uh, that are different from uh, the. Uh, price data, right? So, 
what are the interesting things that people are using or are there things that are not yet as well known, for example, to people that traders are, become, are starting to rely more on uh, data sources? And well, you know, um, I, I think that for the most part, people rely on prices, right? That's yeah. kind of the, yeah. the most objective, right. uh, quote unquote, information you have about the market. And so it's silly not to use prices, right? So people still do not rely on prices a lot. The move has been towards using prices that are more granular because, you know, presumably there's more information in there, but there's also a lot more noise in there, right? So it's, there's, there's no free lunch. Um, but in, in, in addition to prices, people use, you know, fundamental information, balance sheet information, that kind of stuff. And now you're, you have people who claim that they're using social media, right? So. Right. So uh, I guess I should say a couple of things here um, because, you know, I've, I've done a fair amount of work also in analyzing news and, and textual content. And there's a lot of sort of interest around social media, and there should be, but I also think there's a lot of hype around it. Yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah. reason I say this is because you know, social media is much more easily amenable to manipulation and heavy bias than professional media. You know, when, when you when you look at professionally curated content, people are really on the hook to be as objective, quote unquote, as they can, because if they're not, uh, you know, they're, right. they're right. in it for the long haul. You, so know, this, you, you know, this, now that you say that, you know, the, the scenario comes to mind, which is uh, the traders are robots, but the people writing the news are also robots. <laughs> well, I, oh, I mean, I, the source of news is also robots, right? So. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not going to touch that one because I might offend uh, yeah. some, some of my friends who actually write for a living. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but I will say that, you know, robot or not, they're really on the hook to, to try and be objective. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, maybe I'm sorry about that. So, so to clarify, just kind of this machine-generated news articles, right? Right, right, yeah, exactly, yeah. right. So, you know, you really have to be sort of careful about, about that. And, you know, and I think that... Like I said earlier, uh, there's a lot of potential information in social media, but you know I haven't seen much yet. But, uh, and, but and then and then you hear about all of these things that the hedge funds are looking at, like satellite images, ship shipping container information. You know I don't know exactly uh, how uh, how useful some of these things are, or how how real they are in terms of uh, people actually using it. Yeah, I've I've heard the same thing. Uh, I haven't actually looked at that information. Uh, you know, intuitively, you'd think that you know maybe there's something there because after all, that's objective. You know, you're looking at the number of ships entering or leaving a port. You know, you're looking. You know, and people even look at things like pallets. You know, that right. are used for you know dragging goods around. You know, maybe the number of pallets is is uh, a useful indicator of industrial activity. Uh, so there's, you know, there's no end to the the number of indicators that you can use, but at the end of the day, you know, like it or not, uh, markets are really, really uh, unforgiving. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, there's there isn't a, a lot of really strong kind of structure to them, and you're really kind of, um, uh, you know, trying to extract that, you know, small amount of structure there is any which way you can, and the kinds of uh, items you're talking about uh, are really all. Uh, potential information sources uh, for doing that. Um, which leads me to my next question, which is the title of your recent editorial on the Big Data Journal. Right. Should, should we trust our money to robots? Right. So this is actually part of a larger 
research question and, and my research agenda. I mean, you know, the general research question I really ask is, you know, when do computers make better decisions than humans? Uh, that's, that's really sort of the core question. And in my latest editorial, I've applied it to finance, but you know, there are other areas. I mean, I'm involved in a, pro, you know, in a, a project on education and one might ask the same thing. You know, when, when do computers make better teachers than humans? You know, I mean, it's an equally interesting question. But to come back to uh, my latest editorial, um, that's really kind of a, a summary of, you know, from 20 years of trading experience. Um, and, and I'm asking that question, you know, when, you know, should you trust your money to a robot? You know, but the, the other flip side of that question is, you know, when do computers make better decisions than humans? So that's really the sort of core question underlying. So what, what's the, so for the uh, listeners out there who, who are not following uh, these things too closely, my understanding is the robot wealth managers are starting to manage more money, but they're really the fraction of money they're managing is still small, right? It is still small. And, you know, one of the things I, I did in my editorial was to sort of break up the investment landscape into sort of three different types of holding periods. You know, one, you know, on the one hand, you have high frequency trading, uh, you know, and on the other extreme, you have you know, very long-term investing. So in high-frequency trading, your holding periods are sort of minutes to a day. Uh, in very long-term investing, your holding periods are months to years. So that's the Warren Buffett kind of style of investing. And then there's sort of a space in the middle, which is the part which I find most interesting, uh, where there's a lot of action, which is sort of days to weeks uh, holding period. And the strategy one uses for these different horizons, uh, you know, tends to be very different. So in the high frequency trade uh, trading space, for example, you know, humans really don't stand a chance uh, against computers. Right, uh, this, right, 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 right. It, There's just so much information. Computers don't stand a chance against other computers. Well, that's a well, that's a really interesting question. And, 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 and hold that thought because we'll come back to it because you know, we, we're really moving into a space of sort of machine versus machine now, uh, you know, or robot versus robot in the high frequency space. And and there's a very interesting segment on this in the book called Flash Boys. Um, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, yeah, that, that talks about this because, you know, smarter robots will exploit the, you know, uh, the, the dumber robots who just kind of... Or how about robots who are uh, closer to the exchange? Well, indeed, and and in fact, I'm I, I guess I'm calling them smarter robots because they they also have a speed advantage, but they also are able to sort of detect patterns that uh, anticipate you know when orders are coming, and then they get ahead of them, and and so on and so forth. So there's you know, and Michael Lewis does a good job about talking about that in in the book. But but, but like I said, let's sort of hold off on that, right? So that's sort of the the high frequency space where clearly humans don't stand a chance. Now, in the very long-term space, computers don't really have a basis because there aren't really many instances to learn from, right? Because right. that's, you know, you're talking about, you know, what's going to happen in Greece or, you know, the, you know what's going to happen in China, right. you know, right. which way is the world going, right? So those are decisions that... This is where the global macro... Right. So, those, right. So, those, those tend to be sort of inherently human. But the ironic thing is that humans don't do particularly well there either, right? So... Uh, you know, even though that's uh, inherently human activity, you know, the evidence actually shows, and I, I, I present some of this in my editorial, that humans actually do a relatively poor job at long-term investing, you know, with some notable exceptions like, 
you know, Warren Buffett or, or Stan, you know, Druckenmiller or George Soros. Uh, you know, I mean, those are sort of notable exceptions. So, you know. But are they, so, I mean, to some extent, their returns are also, uh, the, they have these massive, massively successful trades that carry a lot of their historical records, right? Well, so so you you may say that about let's say Soros, you know, that he made a huge bet against the British pound and was incredibly successful, and and that's certainly true. There are some sort of legendary fund managers who made a lot of money by taking a contrarian bet or taking a bet that just was you know, not appreciated by the rest of the market that turned out to be true, and they develop an incredible reputation that way, and then they don't do much after that. But you know, Buffett and 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 Druckenmiller are clear exceptions of that. You know, I mean, if you look at Buffett's track record over the last you know thirty years or so, where you have really enough data about his investment yeah. performance, there's very little doubt that that's pure skill and not luck. Right? Yeah. And, and that's and that's I think, what I think Julian Robin, Robertson probably falls in that category too. Uh, potentially, I mean, I haven't actually looked at his track record, and and that's an interesting uh, point you raise, uh, and and it, it's worth looking into his record. But the, the ones I present are, are these three individuals, and and you know where there's a clear, very long term record that demonstrates that these people have quote unquote systems, and and in fact Buffett is really kind of more of a systematic investor, uh, you know, even though he might be you know classified as a discretionary investor, he really has a system, you know, he 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 has a a system that's followed, and that's why in my article I, I refer to a potential Buffett bot in the future that actually you know emulates that type of thinking. You know, he buys cheap, you know, right, right. Uh, you know, sort of underpriced, really high quality stocks. Uh, you know, so and he has access to cheap financing that he uses to to sort of lever. And he but has he access. Has, to, uh, he also has some. He also uh, looks at the management, right? Of the, of exactly. Okay. Exactly. So these are high quality, uh, you know, as I said, they're high quality companies. High quality means, you know, quality management. But there's a but there's a system to Buffett. Uh, and, and that's what's really interesting. He's applied a system over many, many years that clearly works. Isn't that and, just Ben Graham's book? <laughs> no, not really. No, just kidding. Uh, yeah, yeah no, not really. I mean, I, I think Buffett is quite unique in terms of the strategy that he's crafted. That's uh, you know, fairly, you know, much closer to sort of systematic than discretionary, you know, making outsized bets on one thing and, 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 and you know, making huge returns that way. So Buffett's, Buffett is very uh, consistent. And the question I really raise is, you know, do you think you'll have better chances finding a good robot or a good human? Because, yeah, and, and that's really the one of the central questions. Uh, and I suggest that you might actually have better success finding a good robot as opposed to a good human. So, you know, while human genius does exist, it's very hard to find. Uh, and it takes a long time before it becomes apparent that, right. you know, there was really sort of genius uh, or, or or real skill involved in achieving that kind of performance. Right. So, I mean, so um, I guess revisiting that uh, thread I started earlier because... Uh, uh, a lot of data scientists in the audiences are probably coming at uh, the topic of finance from this angle, which is these alternate data sources. So maybe you, one can cast Buffett in that way, in the sense that he's not looking at just the uh, books, the ledger of the company, because everyone else can do that, but he's looking at different features and different signals, right? So the management, the industry, I don't know. Maybe it's a, maybe he's got 
uh, alternate data sources that are not things that he uh, actually subscribes to or are made available to him in a systematic way, but it's just in his brain somehow, right? So. Well, you know, I, I don't want to make too much of these alternative data sources. Uh, I mean, it's certainly, you know, arguable that maybe he's getting his advantage from alternative data sources, but I really doubt that. I think he's looking at... Oh, no, at no, by, by alternative, I mean just alternative signals. So he's looking at other things just besides the, uh, the, the company's uh, uh, books. Well, so, you know, so I, he, he can he can look at the management and and make an assessment. Right? Yes, I, yeah. yes. I mean, I I certainly think that uh, you know one of the uh, you know you know one of the major things that he looks at is is uh, quality, and and you can express quality in a number of ways. Uh, you know, you can look at quality in terms of the management. You can look at quality in terms of the quality of earnings. Right. Um, and and this is sort of where you know creativity comes in and kind of the market the market power monopoly power or whatever right so well yeah i mean and 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 like i was saying sort of this is where the creativity comes in right yeah. so 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 you can you can ask yourself you know what do you mean by quality of earnings well you know you can you can break that into a number of factors you know maybe you want to look at the volatility of earnings in that uh, you know of the company maybe you want to look at you know the barriers to entry in that industry and 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 the threats facing it, right? So there's a number of ways of looking at quality, and I think it would be fair to say that you know people like Buffett have really analyzed that angle very very carefully. And, and he also only invests in things he understands, right? So he, that's why he's kind of stayed away from all of these advanced tech kind of investments. Correct, correct. And 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 when you and when you uh, and when you're as long term as an as an investor is, as he is, then these factors become really really important. Uh you know compared to sort of at the other extreme and you're doing half frequency trading, well, you know, the, the quality of management doesn't matter. You know, you're basically looking for small fleeting kinds of opportunities. Uh the space in the middle is kind of where like I said things get interesting. And there are many, many types of ways to extract alpha or, you know, what some people call exotic beta. That is, you know, taking a certain kind of risk and being compensated for it. Um, so, you know, one of the things I mentioned, for example, in my article is that it's very difficult for the average person to beat a list of companies that's highly curated and represents the best of American industry, right? So, uh, you know, the index consists of companies that are healthy, and that's why they're in the index. A, a company gets sick, well, it gets tossed out of the index. So the index is actually designed to be, you know, to, to go up. It, it represents the healthiest economies, uh, the healthiest companies in an economy. And that's why it's very difficult to beat an index. And it's not surprising, therefore, that most long-term managers don't actually manage to beat the index. It's very difficult to have sort of that additional level of skill that's been demonstrated by, uh, that, that's been demonstrated by Warren Buffett. Uh, you know, you know, you can only do so much if you're only allowed to go long companies, right? Whereas if you're allowed to long and short, right. you know, now you're sort of increasing the sort of opportunity set. You're saying, not only do I have the opportunity to pick really strong companies and 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 go long those companies but i also have the opportunity to pick up to pick short companies and go short those companies right so now you're introducing another variable into the mix into the opportunity set and saying okay if i do long short 
that's a different type of opportunity set that I'm exploiting. And, and that's what that space in the middle really represents. There's, there's lots of different ways of defining the space you want to play in and defining the opportunity that you want to go after and you know where there's some scope for using data and, and scope for data scientists to actually you know come up with you know investment strategies that are well defined that are systematic you know where you can actually you know define something like that objectively and uh, and it can still be based on sufficient uh, sufficient amounts of data where there are enough samples that can actually give you some confidence that there's some sort of statistical power to the to the patterns that you're that you're finding in the data so uh, back when I was in finance when uh, we talked about risk management usually that meant VAR value at risk so what what's the what's the state of risk management are they using different techniques are they using things like machine learning what, what Give us kind of a very uh, high level. So risk is actually kind of independent of uh, the, the the techniques, right? So, right. you know, when you think of risk, there's, you know, it's risk is sort of a multidimensional concept. You know, like you said, there's VAR, you know, but people have pointed out that there are obvious problems with VAR. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, yeah. You know, even, I mean, even from the get-go, people knew there were obvious problems. Exactly, right. But that doesn't mean it's useless. It's actually very useful, right? right. I mean, there are cl clearly limitations to it, but there are limitations to any measure of risk. So VAR is actually a very useful measure, even though it has some, you know, pretty serious drawbacks, uh, especially in those cases where you are in that 1% of the time where you lose more than a certain amount and you right. have no idea how much you're going to lose, right? right? right. So that's a... Clearly, a downside of that, you know, there are drawdowns that you can look at. There are, you know, I mean, risk is a is a multi-dimensional kind of concept. Uh, you know how you know how likely are you to be wrong? Uh, you know, many times in a row. Uh, you know, you know, what's your exposure to different kinds of risk factors? Uh, you know, to uh, you know, depending on the specific investment strategy that you have. You know, you can come up with dozens and dozens of ways to actually define uh, what risk means. Um, so, so, uh, so shifting a little bit away from finance, um, one of the things you're interested in is uh, governance, corporate governance of data. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what uh, kinds of things you're doing in that area? So, um, the, this whole notion of uh, Corporate governance of data was a bit of an offshoot of mine, you know, since I've sort of been in that data space uh, for a long time, you know, and since I'm in a business school and I and I talk to businesses all the time, you know, one of the things that sort of struck me was, well, there were several things uh, that became apparent to me sort of over the years that I've been dealing with data. And that is that companies often underestimate the risks associated with hoarding data, that is, you know, there's this sort of assumption that data is a free option that, you know, just keep it because you never know whether it could be useful. So just keep it. And that's, you know, well and good, but it's really not that simple because you now have the responsibility of making sure that you keep it safe, that it isn't misused. And one of the analogies that I draw is that, you know, if a CEO of a tire company or a automobile company you know, realizes that there's a defect in their product, they go out and apologize for it. And there's a product recall and all and, and so on and so forth. 
uh, in principle, information products are really no different. And, and that major Sony hack that happened you know, several years ago actually demonstrated that, right? Because you had you know, a company that was keeping uh, its uh, customers' data and, and with the expectation from the customers that this data would be secure and would not be hacked and shared with outside people. And yet it was. And you know, the CEO of Sony came out and apologized for that. Uh, you know, and, and that was the right thing to do. And so companies need to realize that keeping data carries risks with it, and there's, you know, and they must really act responsibly in how it's used. Uh, and see. it yeah, yeah, and, and 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 it should not be used in ways that are inconsistent with what you know the the intent of the of the person who provided to you to you was. Um, and just to give you an example, you know, many years ago I was doing a project with uh, one of the major banks, and you know, just in the course of sort of analyzing patterns about customer attrition, you know, of their credit card database, uh, I asked the CEO of that business, I said, you know, I, I really think that if you're making money off of your customers' data, you really ought to share that with them, shouldn't you? You know, and he, and to my surprise, he agreed completely. He said, you know, you're absolutely right, we should. It's just that we just don't have the accounting systems in place to be able to do that in a, you know, in a way that isn't costly or arbitrary. And that was in the 90s, uh, you know, but we're now in an age where our data is being used for all kinds of purposes and we're sort of bordering on some, on, on some real sort of misuse yes, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. of data. And so, you know, there's there's one side of me that, you know, where there's always bells going off and, and saying, you know, we, we really ought to be careful with uh, firstly what data we keep because data can become a liability in terms, you know, in addition to being an asset. And... Once we decide what to keep and, and we have reasons for keeping what we're keeping, and, and by the way, I need to stress this because many companies have no policies around what data they keep and why they're keeping it, right? So I think there should be some clear intent around what data you're keeping and why you're keeping it. And then there should be an explicit sort of you know policy around what constitutes responsible data use. Uh, and then if possible, that sort of surplus that's being generated should really be shared with the people whose data you're using. And that was sort of this, uh, you know, line of thinking that, uh, you know, you're referring to that I uh, wrote about several years ago. Right, right, right. Hey, so just to uh, close this discussion, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was uh, you've been a professor for many years, right? So we talked about uh, the evolution from expert systems to AI to data mining to machine learning, now deep learning, now AI again. So how has your teaching changed in the age where uh, many of these are now under the umbrella of data science? Um, so, you know, yes, there's, there's a huge amount of interest these days in data science, uh, in business analytics. Um, so I do a lot of uh, my teaching in this space. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of view this, this whole big data and analytics space as being sort of similar to, you know, KDD in the 90s, where there was a real party going on and, and people were having a good time. And, and the things that mattered the most were making things work uh, in a principled kind of way, right? So there was a real premium on right. things that worked and were based on some solid sort of underlying principles. And but but I now but now though, Vasant, it seems like I sense that. So unlike kind of the KDD days, uh, now you've got 
universities, companies, uh, right? So uh, rushing to uh, establish training programs around data science certificates. Exactly, programs. and, and yeah. indeed, and and the reason I mentioned the KDD thing is that because what I see now happening is that it's the same kind of you know KDD actually paved the way. I think there were lots of sort of interesting sort of general principles that emerged from this twenty plus years of research, uh, but what I see happening is. The same thing over again, but just orders of magnitude larger. Right, right, right. So, you know, you know, one of the things that uh, I point out to people is that we had this era where many schools established masters in financial engineering, right? But then now they're not as fashionable anymore. And I think we're going to see a lot more masters in data science, and they maybe have longer, longer lifespans. It seems like data science seems to be. A lot more broad and uh, and a lot more uh, applicable to many more industries. So I think that degree program might actually have a longer shelf life. What do you think? That, that's yeah. That that's what I would predict because, you know, like I was saying, this is a phenomenon that's orders of magnitude larger than, let's say, the KDD one or let's say the masters in financial engineering, which tend to be very narrowly focused. You know, in data science, the the basic uh, idea is to 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 sort of really understand this. You know, I mean, I, you know, I've defined data science as the study of the generalizable extraction of knowledge from data, and that's kind of what the 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 emphasis of uh, data science programs is to teach that. But then we also have uh, we also give people the room to specialize, right? So once you kind of learn the general principle, you can specialize. You can specialize in finance or healthcare or education or marketing or you know, whatever it is, or engineering, sciences. So it's a much larger and bigger uh, field that has uh, come you into You know, it's interesting to me because, I mean, in many ways, we in industry, particularly we in Silicon Valley, <laughs> coined this term, right? And But now it's kind of taken off. But, you know, from our perspective, it always was supposed to capture someone that bridged uh, many different skill sets, right? So could do a little bit of data engineering, could do a little bit of uh, uh, data wrangling, could do a little bit of machine learning, could do data visualization. Uh, many parts of that data pipeline, and to top it off, they're good at presenting all the results. Exactly. But, but, but you know, Ben, I, I, I guess I don't want to sort of understate the, the contributions of the KDD community to this, because I think that without the kind of principles that have emerged from that community, we would not be here. Right. right? So... I think the the reason it's sort of data science is, I guess, a reasonable term is that, you know, we can now talk about principles that we really couldn't talk about in the 90s when we were just sort of groping around in this space, trying to understand what the principles are, right? So we have a much kind of stronger base of principles and theory to build on. And so, you know, I, I think it's now become, you know, not unreasonable. So, do you, uh, so when you teach your data science class, do you have like a little like a one lecture on uh, providing some historical context? Well, I always do that. I mean, I, yeah. I think it's really important to provide the history so that people just, you know, people understand why we've come to the place we have. I right. mean, this didn't happen overnight. You know, it happened over decades. And it's important for people to understand the evolution that's brought us here, you know, and, and to understand the kinds of principles that we can build on. I mean, data science is kind of a science, but, you know, I'll end by saying that there's an element of art to it as oh, well. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, you know, in, right. In, yeah, yeah. In, especially in the formulation of problems. Uh, there's a know, lot of soft skills, right? 
there, there's a there's a lot of soft skills. There's a lot of kind of uh, intuition around, you know, what's the right question? Um, you know, how should I formulate the question in a way that will be actionable to a decision maker, right? So there's there, there is there's a lot of there, there is some element of kind of uh, creativity and and art uh, involved in data science. So it's not purely a science. There's definitely an element of art to it as well. So in your from in your uh, from your perch at NYU, so I would imagine now more people are interested in data science than uh, going into becoming quants in finance, right? Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I think yeah, that's yeah. someone wrong. told me. I was in a conference a few weeks ago, and someone told me that all they have to do is put data science in the title of any course, and it's automatically full. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's uh, you know there's there's bound to be some sort of hype around this as well. But uh, that that is true. So uh, you're you're seeing that at NYU as well. Well, you know, I, I think at NYU we were like one of the early movers in the space. We sort of made a commitment to to the space. Uh, you know, established uh, several initiatives, established a center for data science, uh, and you know, we've got some very very cool initiatives going on in in many areas of data science. So we're certainly seeing that interest, but we haven't really, uh, you know, but but it's not like we're uh, overhyping it and admitting, you know, thousands of students. We're being very careful uh, in maintaining quality and just, you know, making sure that we deliver what we say we deliver. Well, thank you, Vasan. This has been great, and uh, we look forward to your uh, editorials on the Big Data Journal. And uh, we should work on getting uh, some of those onto the O'Reilly radar. Would love to do that. Uh, thanks, Ben. It's been uh, it's been fun chatting, and thank you so much. You can follow Vasant Dar on Twitter at V-A-S-A-N-T-D-H-A-R. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.